Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the soundtrack series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, artist and DJ Crystal Durant, a.k.a. DJ Crystal Clear, tells us how her mother told her that Kermit the Frog was actually singing about her when he sang It's Not Easy Being Green because it's never easy and sometimes scary to be different. My father had to deal with a lot of racism. We had crosses burned on our lawn, and uh, we had to sue the school district to get Little Black Sambo taken out of the library because it was still existing and in every library in the whole school district. But first... You know what? I cannot find definitively if that is Madonna leaving a voicemail or not. Some sources say that it is. Some say it's actually vocalist Kelly Bienvenue. My friend Joe says it's Kelly. But I, I think Kelly was more in that song. There's this vocal that just goes, I, I, like that. I think that was her, not the voicemail message. Regardless, whatever. I always love this track. Madonna, of course, hates this track. And I think she and Junior Vasquez don't speak anymore because of it. But I love it. And we differ, Madonna and me. So anyway, Rebel Heart is Madonna's new album, and it's out, and I don't love it. But I, you know what? I also don't love dogs or chocolate or bachelorette parties or Bob Dylan, and those things still do all right globally. But I don't know. Maybe it just has to grow on me more. I just think it sounds like a current album, very now, very shaving only one side of your head. And you know what, though? One of the four billion things I always loved about Madonna was that she was always a half step ahead. Music-wise, she was never really years before her time, years ahead of the curve, but she had this ability to present us with style and trend that was about to be huge in six hours. She presented us with what she knew about, what she liked, what she wanted to share with us, and what she wanted to say with little regard for what was already popular. And that was exciting. But that's changed now. And that's what I hear in this album, is everything we already know is happening. I should have seen it coming, though. I, in 2005, actually. Because that's when I saw Rise. And when I saw Rise, I turned to my friend Bradley, who I saw the movie with, and I said, Crump is going to be the next Madonna thing now. And then, what do you know, there's Miss Prissy in the video for Sorry and Dancing with Madonna at the VMAs. But anyway, I still love Madonna. I will always love Madonna. My first album might have been Thriller, but my first maxi single was Borderline Lucky Star. My favorite picture of her is from the inside jacket of Like a Prayer. My Like a Prayer cassette still smells like patchouli. I contributed to the anthology Madonna and Me, which is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Library and Archive, so I get to tell people I'm in, can you hear the heavy air quotes, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I saw the Confessions Tour front row for free. It was amazing. At one point, I believe during Jump, she looked right at me. And ooh, I felt the very best shiver I ever felt in my entire life. And I know little details about Madonna. She was born August 16th. 
1958. She came to New York City in 1978. At one time, she lived in Queens. She was a drummer in the very early 80s for a band called The Breakfast Club. She once auditioned for fame. It's like I always thought I knew everything about Madonna, but I don't. Because last week, Madonna gave an interview to Howard Stern, and there were a lot of things revealed in that interview that I didn't know. I mean, I was excited to learn that in 2015, there are still all new things I could learn about Madonna. But at the same time, not knowing these things also made me feel like I still have such a long way to go, which is fine, I guess. I mean, what's going to happen the day I know everything about Madonna? What am I going to do then? I... I'll start on Prince, I guess. But anyway, these are the things that were revealed in the Howard Stern interview that I did not know about Madonna. Number one, she dated Tupac. What? She did? Or rather, he dated her? This was like finding out in Kennedy's book that Madonna dated Henry Rollins. Oh, it's so great. I don't know if you read it. Kennedy's book, The Kennedy Chronicles, in their amazing stories, some that she actually told at Soundtrack Series, but one that she tells about she was friends with Henry Rollins. This is in the early 90s, and they both kind of lived in the East Village, I think. And one night, sitting out on a stoop, East Village, early 90s, he tells her that he's actually dating Madonna, and they have to keep it quiet because she's such a big star and all this kind of stuff. And then, of course, Kennedy puts this in the book. And I think he may not like now that Kennedy has told the world, but I am so glad she did. But anyway, wow. Tupac. I mean, we all remember Warren Beatty and Sean Penn and Basquiat and Guy Ritchie and Dennis Rodman. But oh, remember when Madonna dated, hooked up with whatever, Jose Canseco? And then at a New York-Oakland game at Yankee Stadium in the early 90s, the bleacher creatures, the Greek chorus of our time, threw a camera and a Madonna-esque blow-up doll at him in center field. It was the best of times. No! No! Actually, I stand corrected. Remember when she dated Vanilla Ice? Yeah, that was the best of times. All right, number two, how they put together the Super Bowl halftime show stage. I didn't know this. She was saying how she was very nervous to do the Super Bowl halftime show because it was live and because anything could go wrong. And P.S., anything Madonna-wise could range from her getting yanked off the stage by her own cape just a few days ago to a dancer leaving a shirt behind from a particularly strippy number during a live show that she then chooses to chastise the audience for. So, story, when I saw the Confessions tour from the front row, I will never not remind you of that, one of the dancers left a shirt behind. Like, they, they were all taking their shirts off, whatever, and that wasn't cleared away by the crew. And she starts yelling at the audience. I fucking told you, don't fucking throw anything onto the stage. Oh, my God. Have you ever experienced 40,000 people confused at the same time I have? Anyway, she was nervous about what might go wrong at the Super Bowl. And one thing that she mentioned was that the NFL hires local people, local to wherever the Super Bowl is that year, to assemble the stage for the halftime show. I had no idea this was the case. I didn't even think of that. In fact, this past year... I worked with someone who every year he PAs for the halftime show, wherever it goes. And he lives in New York, but he works with the production company or a couple of them that seem to do it all the time. So he gets to go and work on the halftime shows. And so I guess I just figured, though, I'll be honest, I never really gave this much thought, but that whatever production company produces that halftime show brings their own people, I guess. And maybe they, they do handle the hiring, but it's just them hiring locals on the NFL's dime 
I don't know. So that was something I didn't know, how they put together the halftime show stage. But in addition to that, something else that I didn't know, I didn't know that Madonna has such little faith in the Teamsters of Indianapolis. But maybe let's not tell them. All right, number three. Her manager in the 80s, Freddie DeMann, told her that showing her butt during her iconic performance of Like a Virgin at the 1984 VMAs was the end of her career. Come on. Now, everybody knows about this performance. It's the 1984 VMAs, and she comes down from the cake. She's in the wedding dress, and she comes down off the cake, and then she sort of walk dances around a little bit, and then she starts humping the stage and rolling around, and then everybody doesn't know what to do with it. Right. So right when she's coming down the cake, she said that she lost her shoe. She kicked, and her shoe came off. And if you watch the video, it looks like then she just kind of kicks her other shoe off to make it look like, well, that's what was supposed to happen. But when she lost her shoe, she dove for it. This is what she was saying in the Howard Stern interview. She dove for it, and then her dress came up. And then the dress somehow got caught in itself, and her butt was showing pretty much the whole time. Again, watch it on YouTube. It is right there. And she said that she didn't know her skirt was up, that she just performed the song, made the best of it, but not knowing the whole time that she was showing her ass to the whole audience and the world. So she gets off stage, and her manager at the time was Freddie DeMann, who, P.S., had also managed Michael Jackson. And right there, he told her that her dress had been up the whole time, she showed her ass to the world, and her career was over now because of it. Which, not for nothing, but for someone who was the music manager, the music mind at the time, that's a pretty amateurish prediction. Because that is the performance that made the world pay attention to Madonna. And if you do watch the performance, it's pretty bland. She is just kind of walking around and then rolling around. This is not Vogue at the 1990 VMAs. It's a pretty whatever performance. So the attention she got after that pretty much had entirely to do with the sexy sexiness of oopsie, my skirt is up, which is hilarious to me because I am certain in the way I'm certain of my own eye color that she knew it the whole time. Maybe she didn't plan for her skirt to get caught, but she knew when it happened that it happened. Please. In the book, I Want My MTV, The Oral History of MTV, Les Garland recalls how for rehearsal, she wore nothing underneath her wedding dress. And he talks about it in the book and that she knew they were all watching her climb up the ladder to get on the cake because then she called down to them, how do I look? Come on. She knew her dress was up and her ass was showing. She knew. She just made sure you knew it too. Okay, number four. She was fired from Dunkin' Donuts for playing with the jelly squirt gun. Okay, I knew she worked at Dunkin' Donuts, and I know she doesn't currently work at Dunkin' Donuts, but I had no idea that she was fired because she was playing with the jelly squirt gun. Pretty great. I personally was once suspended, not fired, suspended from Zando. I don't know if you know what Zando is, but it was, it was spelled like X-A-N-D-O, and some people pronounced it X and O, and some people just said Zando. But it was a coffee shop, dessert kind of place that then merged with what's now Cozy, but in the beginning, like in the late 90s and the early aughts, it was Zando. All right. So I was once suspended from Zando for, let's just say, getting mouthy with a customer who, from the second she walked in the door, she made a point of telling us she was a vegan, how vegan she was. She was this big vegan. She was a strict vegan. So I have to say what she was doing at Zando, I have no idea. But I was barista-ing and I made her a completely not vegan berry blast because pretty much nothing there was vegan and when I gave it to her 
I said, and there's no cows in it, I promise, or something. I wish I had said something more awesome to make her then march out of that restaurant to the Zando that was like five blocks away to demand that I be fired in a location that she was not complaining in. I I don't know what that was about. And I always love that, though, by the way, when customers at restaurants think they're doing you a disservice by demanding you be fired. Come on, you know, if you have ever worked in a restaurant, that is the biggest favor a customer could do for you is taking your crap job. Oh, lady, like you clearly have never worked at a restaurant if you think that you are punishing me by demanding I be fired. No, it is the biggest favor you you could do for me, even though she didn't get me fired. But to any other customer who has, thank you. And thank you, joyless shift supervisor at Dunkin' Donuts. Without you, we would have no Into the Groove And I don't want to know that world. All right. Also, that I didn't know, I sort of knew this, but not to the extent she doesn't do drugs and she hates marijuana. I do believe that she doesn't do any of that stuff because whenever she references drugs in her music, which is not often, it sounds like someone who doesn't do them ever. Here, I'll show you what I'm talking about. This is off the new album. We can do drugs and we can smoke weed and we can drink whiskey. Yeah, we can get high and we can get stoned. You see what I mean? Like, she has heard of drugs, but is not someone who speaks as though she has a whole lot of experience with drugs. This is not Johnny Cash covering Hurt, speaking from a place of knowing. It's more speaking from a place of quoting. It's like me, actually, being completely sexually inexperienced when I was 20 years old. But when the first guy that I was with asked me point blank, are you a virgin? Because he, you know, could tell. I told him that I was, but then I very quickly backpedaled and also told him, but uh, but it's fine because in, in high school, I was, quote, the main blowjob person. So it was like that. And finally, something I did not know before this interview, Madonna wore a grill for this interview. Oh, Madonna, you be you. And failing that, T-Pain. Yes, one of my favorite Madonna remixes, How We Tease Human Nature. Okay, our story for this episode is from artist and DJ Crystal Durant, a.k.a. DJ Crystal Clear. And this is Crystal's story about why her mother told her that Kermit the Frog was singing about her when he sang It's Not Easy Being Green, and how difficult it was for her family to start out in the closed-minded, racially imbalanced Allentown, Pennsylvania of the 1960s. Easy being green Having to spend each day The color of the leaves When I think it could be Nicer Being red or yellow So my song is It's Not Easy Being Green Written by Joe Raposo Sung by Jim Henson A.K.A. Kermit the Frog (laughs) It really is one of my all-time favorite songs Kermit the Frog Green is my favorite color. Not just green, but Kermit the Frog Green. The reason why this song really resonates with me and I thought of it immediately was because it relates to my childhood in a very significant way. My mother told me that Kermit the Frog was singing about me because our lives were not gonna be easy being green. And in a lot of cases, it wasn't. I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, 
My father was the first black engineer hired at what was then Bell Labs, which is now AT&T. My father was a math teacher in public school and uh, became an engineer. He had two PhDs and all these degrees and stuff and was recruited by Bell Labs. So as I got older, my parents told me stories about how difficult it was to get a house where we lived in South Whitehall Township in Allentown. And my father told me that he actually had to give a lecture at Muhlenberg College to tell white people how hard it was for him to build a house. Of course, you know, that sounds crazy now, sort of. But my father had to deal with a lot of racism. We had crosses burned on our lawn, and uh, we had to sue the school district to get Little Black Sambo taken out of the library, because it was still existing, and in every library in the whole school district. My mom turned a lot of really bad things into fun games, like when we would go grocery shopping or go to the mall, go to Sears or something, and we'd walk around and we'd get followed by security all the time. It would be one security guard, and then two security guards, and three security guards, and my mom said, oh, we're making our own parade, isn't this fun? This is great. That is, uh, you know, the kind of stuff that we had to deal with. This past summer, my father died. He was uh, 79 years old. My mom died 20 years ago this month. So my sister and I are cleaning out our house. We're trying to sell it. And all of these stories that my parents told us have now become um, incredibly tactile because we're finding evidence of them. So learning what my parents went through, what we went through, and now they actually exist. So growing up, my father was always yelling at us to throw out our stuff. You know, he hated clutter, he hated a lot of junk. It was really disturbing to find a whole bunch of stuff that he actually saved. And my sister and I were just thought, wow, this is crazy. He was yelling at us to throw out things all the time and he kept all this stuff, but it's good stuff. One of the things I found was the actual newspaper article in the paper of where my father had to give this lecture at Muhlenberg College to tell white people that they were racist. What I found very interesting about these things is the language that they're written in because of course they don't say African-American or black, they say Negro, which is what we were called back then. So here's the headline of the article. Negro tells trouble in finding Lehigh Valley home. And this is in the morning call, March 30th, 1966. So this is a year after I was born. It took Bernard Durant five and a half years to find a place to live in the Lehigh Valley. When he was graduated from high school, he was offered 30 college scholarships. He now has two degrees and is employed as an engineer specializing in mathematics at Western Electric. Durant said the reason it took so long to find a home for him and his wife is because he is a Negro. He told the story with a minimum of angry words last night at a meeting of the Sociological Society of Muhlenberg College. Durant said that he was unable to obtain mortgage money at any of the banks and building uh, loan institutions in the Lehigh Valley where he applied. He had the savings for a down payment and he had an above average salary. He was even asked to leave bars where he went for a drink and talk with friends. At other bars he had been overcharged. His hopes were raised once when he thought that he and his wife had found a place to live. A contractor, Elmer G. Minnick of Walnutport, Route 3, offered to sell him a corner lot in the Bath, Northampton area and to build a house on it. But Minnick came under pressure from neighboring residents and had to back down. What had happened was he had crosses burned on his lawn and got bomb threats because he was going to sell to my father and they didn't want any Negroes there. Durant, in desperation, recalled he had met an Allentown attorney, Hyman Rockmaker. He went to see Rockmaker and, as a result, got in touch with the State Human Relations Commission in Harrisburg. The Minnick incident was taken into court, Durant said, but he decided that though he had a state law to stand, on, to stand by, he was not going to sue and lose, cause that guy to lose his license. 
So then it says, come right out. Durant spent countless lunch hours calling real estate brokers and private property owners who advertised in papers. He would explain that he was an engineer working at Western Electric, which was a really good job. 1966, that was, you know, a very prestigious gig. They would tell me to come right out, but when I got there and they saw me, they would say the place had been sold or they would say they would not sell to a Negro, Durant said. Durant eventually got a house. Contractor Nick Nelegescu of Allentown called him up, having heard of his story, and agreed to sell him a lot of land and to, uh, at 1220 North 21st Street, which is where I grew up, in South Whitehall Township. Neguescu received threatening phone calls. Now that was just the little bit of it. He got a lot worse than that people went to his house and um, spray painted all over it and threw eggs at his house and tr like cut down one of his trees, all this crazy shit because he agreed to work with my father. Durant said he and his wife and daughter, that's me, had been living on North 21st Street for eight months. He said Neguescu told him, I would build the house. I don't care what happens. He told Durant that he received telephone threats and that he would never build another home in the Lehigh Valley. During construction of his home, the workmen needed water. Durant said that it was necessary to string a 250-foot hose line from his property to a neighbor's house who would become his friend because the township would not let my father dig a well on our own property to get water. Uh, at one point during the house construction, he heard there was a petition circulating against his moving into the neighborhood. He said that before Minnick had been forced to withdraw the offer on the Bath Northampton lot, he had an architect draw plans for the house. We still have those plans, my sister and I, in the house. I have a picture of my mother pregnant with me in front of the foundation of that house. So here's a letter that was written by one of the people who read about this in the paper. So it says, Dear Mr. and Mrs. Durant, I read in the newspapers of your efforts to, bind, to build a home and final success with the help of Mr. Negoescu. I'm glad that you have your new home and deeply regret that your search had to go so long and so hard. I am ashamed of white Americans who are so slow to learn that humans with brown skin has nothing to do with their worth that they're just like everybody else. It has everything to do with individual under the skin. May you live your lives happy. Yours very truly, Faith Sterning. Now, back to the song. My nursery school teacher had me draw a picture of Kermit the Frog when I was a kid because I told her about how he was singing about me and she couldn't understand what that meant. But she realized later because after she accepted me into her nursery school, which was in her house, she got bomb threats. Uh, we had to have the police stations outside of her house to keep people from messing with her just because she accepted me there. And she kept that picture that I drew of Kermit the Frog up until she died. And when she died, her kids, well, her grandkids called me up and they gave me the picture, which I have in a frame in the house that we're about to sell. Yeah, it's not easy being green. Thanks for listening. And green can be cool and friendly like Yes, amazing. Crystal Durant. And you know what? I actually grew up near, not in Allentown, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Nazareth. That's about 20 minutes away from Allentown. And so whenever you, I, I say, well, I'm from Nazareth and people don't know what that is. And then you say, well, it's near Allentown. Well, people know what that is. And they go, oh, like the Billy Joel song. Yeah, like the Billy Joel song. But you know what? It is important. People know this part, too, that there were brave, tenacious people like Crystal and her family in small towns like this who fought who persisted, who didn't give up. And it's the individual stories like this one that helped make the biggest changes. And that's it. That's our episode for this go around. This has been the soundtrack series. And you know what? Last episode when I asked you what sample is this? 
That is On a Clear Day You Can See Forever by the Peddlers. Congratulations to Steve Newman of St. Cloud, Minnesota. He got the right answer, so he won a copy of Glow, the autobiography of Rick James. Anyway, as always, you can find us on Twitter, on Facebook, right here where you found us, and sometimes under the bed. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>